a member of the British aristocracy advertised in the newspaper for a chauffeur to drive her Rolls Royce. And then the applicants came from all over, and she narrowed them down to four. And she took each of the four candidates up to an upstairs balcony, and she pointed to a wall that's near the garage. And she said, how close can you come to that wall without scratching my Rolls Royce? Well, the first one said, well, I can come 12 feet close to the wall without scratching the car. The second candidate said, well, I can come as close as six inches without scratching the car. The third candidate said, oh, I can be as close as three inches from that wall without scratching the car. And the fourth candidate says, I don't know how close I can come to this wall without scratching your beautiful Rolls Royce, but I know this. I would try to stay as far away as I could from that wall. He got the job. Why? Because he understood that the best way to stay out of trouble is to allow as much margin of safety as possible. And beloved, this is the same principle that the Apostle Paul applies here in regard to sexual temptations. The best way for victory over temptation is to flee from it. (laughs) You don't entertain the thought of how close you can come. You don't host it, the thought, day in and day out without getting into trouble. You don't contemplate it day in and day out. But when a temptation calls, hang up, just as you do with these telemarketers. Why? Because temptation often comes to all of us through a door, through a phone line, through a website, through social media, whatever avenue that we have, and we've got a lot of them now, (laughs) you need to run and keep on running. I've been saying throughout the series of messages from 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church mirrors the 21st century church in the West— they rationalize sin, and they use theological excuses for sin. They perverted biblical truth to justify sin. They use grace as an excuse to deliberately and habitually stay in sin. They've developed philosophical arguments for their sin. Sounds familiar? Because it is the same devil— The devil has not changed. From day one in the Garden of Eden, when he rationalized Adam and Eve's sin, it's the same devil who rationalized the sin of the Corinthian church. It's the same devil who's rationalizing sin in the 21st century church. And this is how the line of rationalization works. For the first century Greek culture, they believed that Everything that's physical, including the body, is evil, and therefore of no value. (laughs) Talk about nothing new under the sun. And when you begin your thinking that way, you can only have two choices. The first choice is that for some believers, then what you need to do is subjugate the body into a very rigorous asceticism. Or the second choice, which the Corinthian chose— 
which a 21st century professing church has chose, which is very popular in our culture, and it is, let these desires, sexual or otherwise, just run wild. Be fully indulged. Go unbridled. And that is why in verse 12, chapter 6, Paul said that just because my sins are forgiven does not mean that sin is good. Just because my sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ does not mean that it is right for me to sin. No. Sin always, always, always brings losses, never a profit. Sexual sins, like all other sins, promise pleasures, uh, satisfaction, but it delivers nothing but bitterness and wormwood. Read Proverbs chapter 5 and listen to the man who knows what he's talking about, for he tried it all. Again, I must remind you of one major important difference between the 21st century church and the 1st century Corinthian church. One very, very important difference. They were coming out of paganism and pagan religious systems into the Christian faith. Here in the 21st century, we are coming out of Christian belief and biblical orthodoxy into pagan lifestyle and bringing it to the church. They were coming out of temple prostitution, which was part of their pagan worship, but we are going into pagan practices that we bring into the church that once belonged to Jesus. Isn't that sad? If that does not make you weep, I don't know what. And that is why in verse 12, chapter 6, he said, those who have put their trust in Jesus, must not allow themselves to be mastered by anything other than the Spirit of God. Being mastered by sinful habits, being mastered by sinful customs, being mastered by any substance, all of that must be exchanged with being mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, sin by nature is enslaving. It's just it's the nature of sin. And the more you indulge in it, the more controls it has, and sin's control lingers. Often, it begins by a small indiscretion. Often. It's a small indiscretion. And that is why I tell you, deal with it while it's small indiscretion by repentance. Deal with it by confession. Deal with it by placing it under the blood of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't confess it and repent of it while it is small, when it's not resisted by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will not only destroy the person, it's going to hurt a lot of other people who are around them. Sexual sin, Paul said, perverts God's plan and God's purpose for the body. For the Christian believer, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Temple is a building, hosts the presence of God so that he may be worshipped alone. The Christian body is where God dwells. The Christian body is where God resides. The Christian body is where God is honored. The Christian body is where God is revered. The Christian body is where the Word of God is obeyed. And that is why in verse 13, Paul explaining to them that 
their rationalization of sin is flawed. It's flawed. Here's how they rationalize sexual sin. Since the stomach is for food, and food is for the stomach, therefore sex is like eating food for the body. Just as the stomach is made for food, and the body is made for sex, any sex. Paul stops this foolish thinking dead in its track by saying that while food and the stomach have a a biological relationship, God one day is going to destroy both. But not so with the body itself, not the body of the believer. The body of the believer is designed by God so much more than just a biological function. Our bodies are not only designed to serve God in this life, but for all of eternity. Oh, to be sure, our bodies are going to be glorified bodies. They're going to be changed bodies. They're going to be resurrected bodies. They're going to be heavenly bodies. But nonetheless, they'll be our bodies in which we'll serve God for all of eternity. Here, here in chapter 6, verses 15 to 18, it tells us, that the believer's body is not only for the Lord in the future, for eternity, but here and now, in this age, in this life, in this time. Our bodies are spiritual temples where the Spirit of God resides. Therefore, it is inconsistent for the believer in whom the Spirit of God dwells to be engaged in any sexual activities other than heterosexual relationship in marriage between a husband and a wife, period. No buts, no if, no the culture said, no Mr. So-and-so said, not the Reverend Smilfungus said, I don't care, the Bible is the absolute truth. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Each time a man and a woman, husband and wife, enter into a sexual relationship, a spiritual bond established between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally ended. And that is why God gave us the gift of sexuality, in order to be fulfilled only within the bonds of heterosexual marriage between husband and wife. It's just because that gift of God, the gift of sex, has been given to us by God, has been perverted in our culture. We must not be afraid to talk about it in our homes, in our churches, because it is a gift of God. And once we explain to children and the next generation why is that gift given, then we will be able to fend all this perversion that is coming at us. After all, a fire in a fireplace on a cold night is absolutely delightful. Let that fire jump out of the fireplace. It will burn the house down. And it's the same with sexual gift. It is given for marriage between husband and wife. That is why believers' sexual bonds with any person other than your spouse is reprehensible. Why? Because it profane Jesus Christ who lives within us in our bodies. 
and with whom we are united. I know you hear this argument all the time in the media and television. You hear it all the time. My body is my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Number one, if they belong to the devil, their body's not theirs. It belongs to the devil. The devil is controlling it. But here's what I care about. I only care about the believers, the children of God. According to verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that is absolutely not true for the believer. Your body is not your own. <laughs> your body has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were not bought by a, some cash or, or even a, some useless metals like silver and gold or some piece of real estate. No, you have been bought with the precious, priceless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, listen to me. That is what being holy is all about. We have such a confused, mixed-up idea of what a holy person is, or a holy man, or a holy woman. We think it's some hermit somewhere living out in a monastery. Oh, he's a holy man. But when you talk, it's, that's why we talk about the holy land, or the holy Bible, or the holy city. What does it mean? It means that they belong to God. To be holy is to be exclusively belonging to God. To be holy is to be set aside for God's use. To be holy is to be owned, lock, stock, and barrel by God. That's what holy means. Did you get it? So the question we might be asking the Apostle Paul today is this. How in the world shall we live a godly life in a godless world? How in the world are we going to live spiritually healthy life in a spiritually sick world? world? How in the world are we to live a chaste life in a sex-crazed world? And if you think we have a big problem, the Corinthians had a humongous problem. And I'm so thankful to the Lord that all these things have already been answered in the Word of God, so we don't have to struggle with them. Aren't you grateful? And Paul answers that question in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. Their society like ours They were boasting about their freedom to commit sexual sins, all sexual sins and perversions and acts and fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, all kinds of sexual sins. They were bragging about it. Back then, there were four types of marriages. Just to give you a background so you understand specifically why Paul is saying what he's saying. Four types of marriages. There was a marriage between slaves, which was known as tent companionship, where the slaves lived together at the whim of the master. They were separated at the whim of the master. Then there was a second type of marriage. The second type of marriage, which was common law marriage. This type of marriage was recognized after a man and a woman lived together for 12 months. The third type of marriage was when the father sold his daughter to a husband. But then there's the fourth type of marriage. That is the highest form of marriage, and it was practiced by the patrician class, by the nobility. As a matter of fact, this type of marriage was adopted later by the Roman Catholic Church and was Christianized and modified to be a Christian marriage. 
in those marriage ceremony, in that fourth type of marriage that's among the noble people, it was both families involved in the arrangement of the marriage. A matron of honor uh, accompanied the bride, and a groomsman accompanied the groom. And there was exchange of vows. Uh, the bride wore a veil, and uh, there were given rings and wore in the third finger. And there was a wedding cake, and on and on and on. During the time of the Apostle Paul, divorce was so common and so rampant that it was not unusual for someone to have been married 20 times. Not among the nobles. Childish marriages were very common. Men and women lived their lives regardless of marriage vows. Now, I don't know about you, but it astounds me how much our Western civilization is now straining back to the first century immorality. After 2,000 years of Christian teaching, after 500 years of Reformation, after over 400 years of Western civilization that was based on the Scripture, we're going backward morally. Not only that, but some believers thought that to be single or a celibate is far more superior, spiritually speaking, that is. These people kind of say, oh, because I'm single, I'm, I'm superior to the married ones. In a moment, I'm going to explain all of that. <laughs> and so they discouraged marriage altogether. Others even went as far as to say that sex, even among married couple, is wrong, is sinful. You need to be given up. Talk about confusion. They were utterly confused. There was so much confusion on the subject that many Christians were perplexed. They were frustrated. Then they were asking the Apostle Paul, saying, Help! <laughs> And here are the questions that they sent to the Apostle Paul to give them an answer, and he answers them in these verses. What do we do now that we have become believers living in this sex-crazed world? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we both become believers? Should we divorce if one spouse becomes a believer and the other one is not? Or should we get married at all? just remain single. And that is why in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying, verse 1, now concerning the questions you sent me. That's how we know there were questions they are asking. So he's, he's responding to them. He's answering them. There is no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul, who drank deeply of the Old Testament, the Word of God, consulted the Holy Spirit as he began to give them the answers. Listen to it very carefully. He said, if you're a single person who's contented to be single, and you have the gift of celibacy, stay single. If you're married, and you're both believers, stay married. If you're married to a non-believer, and you're happily married, and your non-believing spouse is very happy for you to continue in the faith, stay married. Don't Leave him or her. Fourthly, he said, if you are married to an unbeliever and he or she wants to leave you because of your faith, let them go. Paul, like all faithful New Testament writers, listen carefully, please. Like all faithful New Testament writers, they all drank deeply, including our Lord Jesus himself, who authored the Old Testament. They all drank deeply from the Old Testament. They did not teach we should be unhinged from the Old Testament. 
the Old Testament is like a house that does not have a roof. The New Testament is the roof that makes the house complete. Paul was thinking, goes back to Genesis chapter 2, where God, and same thing Jesus said in, in Matthew 19, that God created him from the beginning, a man and a woman, not two men and not two women. God created them perfectly to fit in every way, anatomically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, to complement each other. He created them to fellowship, for companionship, for complementation of each other. From that time on, marriage is between a man and a woman, regardless of what the law of the land of any land said. It is partnership. And we give God glory. Give God glory, not me. All I'm saying is just saying His Word. <laughs> it is a partnership. It's a friendship. It's a companionship. It's a complementary relationship. Later, in the New Testament, Paul takes the Old Testament concept where God presented Himself as the husband of Israel, His people, His chosen people. And he lifts that concept from the Old Testament, and he applies it in the New Testament to the church that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Beloved, this picture of Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride, should be mirrored in every Christian home. What does it mean? It means for husbands to be the initiators. They are to be initiators of love, of mercy, and of grace, just as Jesus initiated love to His church, the bride, to you and me, the believers. He initiated love. He initiated mercy. He initiated grace. And just as we, the believers, responded to His initiating of love, mercy, and grace— so must the wife respond to her husband's loving initiation. Just as believers love, adore, and honor the Lord Jesus Christ, so must the wife learn to love, adore, and honor her husband. I want to stop here just for a moment and speak to young husbands and young wives. The old ones, it's too late for you guys like me. <laughs> it's too late for us. But I want to speak to the young ones. And if I can contribute anything from the Word of God, not from me, from the Word of God. So let me start with the wives, because by the time I get to the husbands, I could be stoned to death. <laughs> so precious wives, do not beat your husband over the head, regardless of how much sometimes you want to. When you do that, you're doing something unnatural. Precious wives, listen to me. Hear me right on this one. God created men with an ego. And no matter what mama said or what grandmama said, that the way to the heart of man is his stomach, it is not. It's his ego. Amen. Amen. That's right. <laughs> we have an honest person here. <laughs> Please do not try to beat his ego out for him. That's God's job. <laughs> Let God take care of that. He does a better job. Do not try to put him down all the time. Certainly never in public. 
Young wives, I'm pleading with you. Take my advice to heart. Feed his ego, because that is the way God made him. And when your husband reaches out to you in love and tenderness and mercy, you must respond with love. How? By building him up, by encouraging him in his initiating effort. Even in times when you want to say, don't touch me. Well, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Just explain to him how you love him, but just now physically you are unable to respond to his love. (laughs) Look at verses 3 and 5, 1 Corinthians 7. When Paul said a husband must fulfill his duties to his wife, and a wife fulfills her duty to her husband, he's talking about more than just sexual relationship. All, the totality of the relationship, but certainly the sexual relationship is a major part of it. I was counseling this man, and, and he said to me, he said, isn't the Bible said uh, that, that a woman should be subservient to her husband? I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Where do you get that subservient bit? It's in the Bible. I said, well, is that Ephesians thing? There's an Ephesians thing. Says, I said, let me tell you about the Ephesian thing. <laughs> The Ephesian thing never said subservient. The Bible never said subservient. That is a complete and utter lie from the pit of hell. Let me explain to you what submission is, because the Bible says submit one to another. Submission means that you, the wife, respond to his loving initiation. That's what it means. It means reacting positively to his initiation. It means building him up as He lovingly approaches you. One last thing, then I'm going to zero in on the husbands. Ladies, don't worry. Don't be concerned about giving your husband a swollen head if you praise him. Did you get that? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I often joke and say, you know, we have a vice at home, and my wife is an expert of putting that vice around my head and go, That's a joke. (laughs) I want to go home today. (laughs) She said, it's not a joke. (laughs) Don't be concerned about bending him into shape. That means you're doing what only God could do. Now I'll have a word with young husbands. Guys, listen to me. Don't get bent out of shape and look for a way out when your wife does not respond to you. Don't deprive her of your affection when she does not know how to respond to you. Help her out. Keep on extending your arms of love. Keep on extending the arms of grace. Keep on extending the arms of mercy. Be patient with her, just as the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is being patient with you. And he's been patient with me. Your wife needs your explanation. Your wife needs your understanding. So don't just clam up. Don't just close up. And I want to remind you, never forget, it's till death do us part. Not until somebody better shows up. I'm thankful that in nearly 48 years, nobody better ever showed up. (laughs) And nobody will ever show up. Amen. Verse 5, don't deprive each other 
except by mutual consent. And it's only for a limited time. For a limited time. For a limited time. Listen to me. Verse 5 again makes it very clear that it is by mutual agreement. And it must be for a higher spiritual purpose, uh, like uh, prayer and fasting. Headaches do not qualify. It's like that husband who came in one evening with a glass of water and two aspirins and was giving them to his wife, and she said, what's that for? I don't have a headache. He said, gotcha. (laughs) If you have a spiritual burden, if you have a unique ministry opportunity, if you have a deep intercession if you have a spiritual warfare time that you're doing prayer on behalf of someone or on behalf of your family or on behalf of yourself, that's fine. But both have to be in total agreement. Beloved, I say that often. I'm going to keep saying it until the Lord takes me home. We often, as husbands and wives, we miss out on some of the great blessings when we fail to appropriate the promise that is found in the power of agreement. And when husbands and wives come together in total agreement, watch out in prayer. Watch out. God will answer prayer. God will do great things. We've seen it for so many years to doubt it. Don't understand it. But then, as soon as the spiritual need is fulfilled, you resume the relationships. Verse 5 again. The reason why this abstinence should not be prolonged is because Satan will have your lunch. He will take advantage of the situation if it's a prolonged abstinence, and he causes havoc. Here's something I'm going to say that probably I will not repeat very often. Sex in marriage should not be used as a pretense for spiritual superiority. Oh, I'm more spiritual than you are. No. Sex in marriage must never be used as means of intimidation or manipulation of your spouse. If you do, you are manipulating God's gift in marriage, because it is God's gift, and it's a wonderful gift. And God is not honored in that situation. Finally, look at verses 6 and 7. Paul is saying that if God has given you the gift of celibacy, rejoice in it. Don't feel the least bit inferior to those who are married. Being single as Paul was at that time of the writing of the epistle means that you have more time to serve, you have more time to study the Word, you have more time to minister to others. For we know from Acts 26.10 that the Apostle Paul was married at some point because he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court. And as a voting member, one of the qualifications is to be married, that you have to be married. And so either he became a widower or his wife left him when he came to Christ. We don't know. At this point of his life, he was single. God gave him the grace to remain single and stay a celibate. But he never used this to tell others that everybody should follow me. No, no, no. That's where legalism comes in. He just said, if you want to be like me, that's fine. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you a fable. There were two little teardrops 
floating along the river of life. One teardrop looked at the other and said, Who are you? That teardrop said, I am a teardrop from a a woman who loved a man and lost him. And then looked at the other teardrop and said, Who are you? Well, I am the teardrop from the woman who got him. (laughs) Beloved, the Word of God to both single and married is that we both should be focusing on the return of Christ, not focusing on our discontentment, not so much on our earthly condition. Now, can I get an amen from both single and married? Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.